In response to the word Kabbalah, many people have a vague notion that it is this mysterious branch of the Jewish tradition. Others may add that it involves reading arcane texts, and if you dig deeper, three additional themes include that what we humans sometimes refer to as God, that the Jewish tradition, the Kabbalah in particular, often refers to as G-D, just to remind us that we don't really know what we're talking about, uh, that it's infinite, and that the Kabbalah concerns our finite attempts of perceiving aspects of that which is ultimately beyond us. It also includes a theme that in the male-dominated world of religion, Kabbalah also famously includes the Shekinah, the feminine half of the divine. And finally, many social justice advocates are interested in this Kabbalistic emphasis on tikkun alam, which means repairing the world, the role that we humans have to play in that. That it's not just about waiting for some sort of divine intervention. But all of these themes are broad strokes, and the Kabbalah is often much more about the details. Indeed, for those of us who spend most of our time in the English-speaking world, the Kabbalah can seem like this rarefied, esoteric tradition. And in one sense, it is. But if you were to travel to Israel, and I know that some of you have, and if you were to pay close attention, you would begin encountering that word Kabbalah with a, for most of us, surprising frequency. At its root, Kabbalah means to receive. So if you're checking into a hotel in Israel, you would go to a desk with a large sign. No, it's in Hebrew, but it would say Kabbalah, meaning that that's the reception desk where guests are received. If you buy anything in Israel, you'll receive a slip of paper with the word Kabbalah at the top, indicating that it is your receipt for the goods or services that you have received. If during your travels through Israel you go to a reception, you might notice people referring to that event as a Kabbalat Panim, literally receiving the face. So reception is Kabbalistic because it is a place where your face in particular is received. If you visit a bank or a government office, the hours in which the clerks receive the public are a Kabbalat Kahal. Similarly, if you were to enroll in a class of professor's office hours, the time during which students are received is known as a um, she'at Kabbalah. Now here's the real twist. Most Hebrew-speaking Israelis don't pay any more attention to all those references to Kabbalah than most of the tourists do. The word is so common that it's treated as unremarkable. And with that insight, we can begin to get to the heart of the matter. Esoteric traditions are are often about training yourself to notice the sacred depths that are always already around you that you've just usually never noticed. I'll give you a few quick examples. My meditation teacher often says that one of the most helpful catalytic practices in the Buddhist tradition is simply noticing. He calls it noticing what you're noticing while you're noticing it. 
Now, that may sound simple, but try it sometime. It's harder than it sounds. Typically, our monkey minds want to do anything other than just notice what's going on. So I'm talking about really simply, like in this moment, I can feel pressure of my feet on the ground. I can feel a coolness. I can feel a thought going. I can feel... Um, slight tingling. So just noticing that and nothing else, not getting all spiraled out. It's harder than it sounds. Uh, Or there's an adage from the Hindu tradition that when the student is ready, the teacher will appear. Part of the implication, if you notice, is that the teacher in various forms has probably always been there, but the missing ingredient is our readiness to notice. Along those lines, you may know the saying from many spiritual teachers that we don't perceive the world merely as it is. We perceive the world in part as we are. And as we change, there are different things that we notice. So on one level, of course, a receipt is just a receipt. A reception is just a reception. Office hours are just office hours. On another level, the Kabbalistic tradition, which at its root means to receive, invites us to notice the surprising aspects we might be capable of receiving from even the most mundane circumstances if we open our hearts, if we open our minds to what might be there for us. One of the most powerful archetypal symbols that I know of of this shift that I'm talking about is actually cut into the ground uh, in the grass here between our sanctuary and the chapel that's across the courtyard. It's our labyrinth. How many of you have walked our labyrinth at some point? So many of you, but not all of you. The labyrinth is, there's no minotaur. Uh, the labyrinth is uh, what is known as a unicursal pattern. There's one way in and one way out, and you're never lost even if it might feel that way sometimes along your journey. The labyrinth can serve as a corrective for one of the greatest and most common misperceptions about the spiritual journey and about spiritual growth. And that misperception is that the spiritual journey is primarily about getting to somewhere other than where you already are often some allegedly perfect place. Some of you may remember my sermon from last spring. The truth is, you are saved from perfection. You're never going to get there. You are saved from perfection. Uh, so, you know, and so it's about, you know, a lot of people think the spiritual journey is about getting to some place where the grass is allegedly greener, right? And don't get me wrong, uh, sometimes the grass really is toxic where you are and you need to go someplace else. Sometimes it's we're the ones that are a little more toxic, and no matter where we go, the grass, you're like, why is this grass turning brown? You know, as the proverb goes, wherever you go, there you are, right? So a labyrinth as a symbol of the spiritual journey invites us to move more deeply, profoundly, and gratefully into the life that you already have. To fully notice the sacredness of everyday life, to more deeply perceive the potential for connection and transformation in acts as simply as receiving a receipt that recognizes someone's time and effort, of receiving hospitality at a reception where your face is known, receiving someone's attention during office hours. The Jewish Kabbalistic tradition has sought to achieve this shift most frequently through a close reading of texts that might seem mundane until their deeper meaning emerges through careful study. 
Uh, And regarding the texts typically associated with the Kabbalah, I should probably add a few cautions. For instance, if you were to find yourself discussing the origins of the Kabbalah with a traditional Orthodox Jew, they would tell you that that text originated 4,000 years ago on Mount Sinai, where the prophet Moses received, received, right, Kabbalah, received directly from G-D, not only the written Torah, which according to tradition was written down and became the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. That's not true either, but that's not the sermon. We're we're debunking that. Uh, But also received the oral Torah, which was secretly transmitted, it is said, from generation to generation. So from from, from God to Moses to Joshua to the elders to the judges to the prophets to the early sages of the Talmud, right on down to the Middle Ages when it said that oral tradition was finally written down. That is a beautiful story, but it is not true. Uh, The historians of religion tell us that the Kabbalah is not a pure, unbroken tradition from Moses to today. Y'all know that saying from, uh, from the... Uh, Cohen brothers, you know, 4,000 years of beautiful tradition from Moses to Sandy Koufax, right? That it's, um, instead, scholars have shown that the Kabbalah is an innovative spin on tradition, which first appeared in southern Europe in the last decades of the 12th century. Uh, the Kabbalists in the Middle Ages were neither copying ancient manuscripts nor writing down oral tradition, which is the two things they claimed to be doing. They were instead, it turns out, composing new ideas out of the creativity of their own minds in creative response to the tradition that had preceded them. To be clear about where I'm coming from as a Unitarian Universalist, I would add not that there's anything wrong with that. Uh, To me, the Kabbalah is no less interesting as a source of spiritual wisdom because it is 800 years old instead of 4,000 years old. As a pragmatist, I'm interested in what works to help us lead meaningful and ethical lives, whether the source of wisdom is millennia old or five minutes old. Noting the relatively recent origins of the Kabbalah is also not new. There have been Jewish thinkers who have estimated the likely medieval origins of the Kabbalah since at least the late 16th century, thus in parallel to the Protestant Reformation when some of our own ancestors were writing books like on the errors of the Trinity and, and things like that. That being said, if you find yourself discussing the Kabbalah with an Orthodox Jew, be forewarned that this area can be a minefield. For Orthodox Jews, the discovery by historians, including their fellow Jews, that, for example, the Zohar, a classic Kabbalistic text, was written not in the second century, but more than a millennia later, at the end of the 13th century, is regarded as, quote, the beginning of heresy. But again, as a UU, I would say, not that there's anything wrong with a little heresy. Uh, we use are many things, but Orthodox is not one of them. Uh, and heresy, as many of you recall, it just means to choose. It's that Greek verb, heresis. It means to choose for yourself as opposed to being told what to believe. Having spent some time exploring the Kabbalah itself, if you'll permit me to shift gears slightly, I also wanted to be sure to spend just a little time about the life and legacy of Gershom Shloem. How many of you had ever heard of Gershom Shloem before? So even as a religion, I see just like a hand or two, uh, as a religion major, I just was sort of vaguely aware of Gershom Shloem, and then there was, has just been this 
Um, huge number of books being published about him really just in the last year or two. And I'm like, I need to figure out more about this guy. And it's actually really interesting. He is the primary reason we know as much as we do about the Kabbalah today from a modern perspective. He almost single-handedly made research into the Kabbalah a truly scientific academic field of Jewish studies. He created the tools, he did most of the work, he baked the bricks, he built the entire building that is uh, you know, the study of the academic study of the Kabbalah today that a new generation of scholars now inhabit that building that he built to do the work that they do. But in looking back at his life, I find it fascinating that it was far from uh, clear early in his life that Shloam would ever soar to the heights that he eventually achieved. To give you just a brief overview, he was born in 1897. He lived until 1982, so he lived quite a long life. Uh, He was born in Berlin, Germany, to a middle-class Jewish family. And for someone whose name has become synonymous with the study of Jewish mysticism, his childhood was really quite secular. Although his family maintained some Jewish rituals, they also had a Christmas tree every year. And his father would routinely mock the weekly ritual of kindling Shabbat candles. He would light his cigar in the flame and say not, and you know, others in his family were chanting, blessed be the one who brings forth the bread of the earth, or um, blessed be the fruit of the vine. He would chant, beret pre tobacco, blessed be tobacco. At age 14, though, Shloam had what he called a Jewish awakening of a sudden deep interest in learning more about his Jewish heritage, but ultimately just never felt like he fit in, either in liberal, reformed Jewish circles or in orthodox Jewish circles. Seeking to then find his place in the world in 1923, while in his mid-20s, he immigrated to Palestine. He did not know how he would make a living, and his father was extremely discouraging of his choices. Uh, His father was disappointed to hear that his 26-year-old son, who had just received his PhD in Semitic culture from Munich University, had turned down a research position at Berlin University to travel to Palestine, where he had no guarantee of employment. Uh, He left Germany with nothing but a handful of contacts and hoped that his German certification in math would enable him to obtain a teaching position. Fortunately, within a week of being in Jerusalem, he received two job offers, math teacher or librarian. He actually chose librarian. It was a lower salary, but it, ga- I know, right? <laughs> but it gave him much more self-directed time. He was worried that teaching all day and grading papers all night would not leave him any free time. And four years later, he transitioned to, be a full- to being a full-time lecturer in Kabbalah at the then-new Hebrew University in Jerusalem, where he remained the rest of his career. Uh, We know now that he was to attain this world renown as a scholar, but in those early days, he forged ahead despite the risk of failure, despite the major discouragement of his father. Here's just one example of a letter he received from his dad. Three cheers for Hebraica and Judaica, but not as a career. You will suffer a bad shipwreck, and who knows if it will prove too difficult for you to reach safe shores since you are all too lacking in strong arms. Like, 
Uh, his father did not live long enough to, for his son to demonstrate just how wrong his parental judgments were. Today, almost four decades after Sholem's death in 1982, his um, scholarship in the Kabbalah continues to be widely read. Most people's scholarship becomes out of date, but his is really considered um, a classic work, still very much worth reading. Now, I don't know if Shlom ever fully forgave his father for his repeatedly harsh words over the years, but I suspect some of you can identify that with that, that somebody has spoken some harsh words to you at various points in time. And one of the reasons I chose this Sunday to focus on the Kabbalah as well as on Gershom Shlom is that we are nearing the end of the Jewish High Holy Days which stretch from Rosh Hashanah, the Jewish New Year, to Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, which you can think of as like, what is atonement? It's at one right? It's kind of restoring, reconciling that which has been broken apart. The ten total days are also known collectively as the Days of Repentance or the Days of Awe. And as contemporary UUs, open to drawing wisdom from all the world's religions, balanced with the insights of modern science, one of the invitations at this time of year from the Jewish tradition is to practice forgiveness. Uh, we are a little less than a week away uh, as well from the fall equinox, the first day of autumn. The t- this uh, coming time of falling leaves is also an auspicious time to experiment with what might you be called to let go of or experiment with loosening around. That being said, it's important to be honest about what authentic forgiveness is and what it isn't. I'm not talking about the cheap forgiveness that just makes us a doormat for repeated abuse. Forgiveness also is a practice. It's a practice not actually that different from practicing the piano, practicing um, free throws in basketball, or practicing going to the gym. If we consistently practice forgiveness, we can actually get better at it over time. The converse is also true. If you practice holding on to a grudge, you can get better and stronger at, at that practice as well. But as the proverb says, refusing to forgive someone for a long period of time is a lot like drinking poison and hoping the other person dies. Relatedly, one of the most helpful touchstones I have found about forgiveness is from Archbishop Desmond Tutu, who learned a lot about um, forgiveness in his work with the uh, Truth and Reconciliation Commission in South Africa. For him, and I found this really clarifying, he said the final part of forgiveness is not necessarily renewing the relationship. It can also mean releasing the relationship. In that spirit, I invite you to remain seated, but begin turning in your teal hymnals to hymn 1037, We Begin in Love. As we prepare ourselves to sing this song in a few moments, I invite you to notice if perhaps in surprising ways you might find yourself being open to practicing forgiveness this morning. As you think about the practice of forgiveness, what name do you secretly know is right there on the tip of your tongue, if only aspirationally? What, whose face just flashes through your mind. You may not yet be able to fully forgive that person, just like you can't hit a free throw every time. We keep practicing. We get better. But in the words of the Buddhist teacher Noah Levine, perhaps you can open yourself this morning to at least experiment with the intention, I forgive you as much as I can in this moment. I forgive you as much as I can in this moment.
Just another um, point or two before we close. That I think one thing that's really striking that I perhaps didn't share as fully as I could have about Gershom Shalom is that he really, for the most part of his life, and in those decades that he spent as a really quite fearsome professor at Hebrew University. I mean, like Elie Wiesel tells story, the Holocaust survivor, author of Night, tells stories about being deeply intimidated by Gershom Shalom and Harold Bloom, if any of you know that name, the famously curmudgeonly um, literary professor at Yale University who literally has read everything multiple times and said like he was deeply intimidated by being near Gershom Shalom. Like, I mean, so the, he was just this, and he was Gershom was famous for. His library that had 25,000 volumes in it. I mean, he just had these like floor to ceiling bookshelves. It was just this, and you made his way as this Kabbalistic scholar by just reading everything and systematizing and all of that. But it wasn't really clear if he was actually religious or not. So he like, really presented as this secular scholar who, you know, didn't believe in the oral Torah was handed down to Moses and, you know, didn't. But, but so it's like, what did he get from? from this study, and so I'll share with you just one story, that at the end of his most famous and impactful book, which is called Major Trends in Jewish Mysticism, he ends with this story from the Baal Shem Tov. Uh, it goes something like this, that it is said that our people used to go to a clearing, a very special sacred clearing, and there they would build a special sacred fire, and they would say special prayers, and they would tell stories. And and then as time passed and generations came and went, the last person who remembered how to build the sacred fire in that sacred way died. But they would still remember where the clearing was, and they would still say the prayers. And then time came and went, and generations um, went, and they still remembered where the clearing went, but they forgot how to say the prayers. And then time continued to pass, and generations came and went, and they forgot where the clearing was but they still remembered the story. And so Gershom Shlom uh, sort of ends there, and then that's the end of the story as the Baal Shem Tov said it, and he ended his, this great book of hundreds of pages of the major trends in Jewish mysticism by saying, maybe that's enough. That we bring to that remnant, to that just glimmer that there might be something more, that we bring to that our intention, and that we tell the story of what could be and what might be. And his openness and part of what he got out of studying the Kabbalah for so long is that you never know when a spark might open, that um, when the extraordinary might come out of the ordinary. So in that spirit, as you go from this place and into the days to come, I invite you to open yourself to what can happen in even the most ordinary encounter when we forgive each, ourselves and each other, when we seek to begin again in love. May you continue your journey in love. Care for one another. Care for this one earth. Do justice and make peace. And as you go, whatever taste or touch you've had in this time and place of hope, of love, of peace, or joy, that goes with you out into the world. We're different for having spent this time together. May you live boldly and with thanksgiving.